0: Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Rich Schrager, my colleague here at UVA Law, who is a leading expert on local government, federalism, and urban policy, among other areas. Uh, He's also the author of the book, City Power, Urban Governance in a Global Age. Rich, thanks for joining me today.
1: Hey, thanks for having me,
0: Mike. So maybe as a starting place, we could actually just begin with this idea of city power. Uh, which has really been an ongoing concern of yours for for a number of years. Yeah, what 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 is this this idea of city power, and and why should we care about it?
1: Well, um, uh, that's a good question. A lot of my colleagues often don't think about cities, especially in law schools, where we talk a lot about the Supreme Court and Congress mm-hmm. and other institutions that are at the national level. But you know, I've been teaching local government law and other uh, sort of locally related classes, urban law and policy, and land use. Uh, for many, many uh, years, almost two decades at this point. And um, I've been um, an advocate for thinking much more about local power than uh, than we often do in, in our law schools. City Power is a book um, that um, brings together a lot of the work I had done prior to uh, pulling it together um, and it really is meant to challenge the 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 usual narrative that we often have about local governments and in particular cities um, that they are either um not able to really control their economic and fiscal fates mm-hmm. that is that they are susceptible to people just fleeing them and therefore they have to engage in policies that attract and retain Uh, residents and firms and businesses and the way they do that is usually through providing certain kinds of amenities to people or tax breaks to firms or they have to have a business friendly environment or so on so there's a view of cities that they they're really constrained by kind of large-scale economic forces and then there's a, a, a a a companion view of cities that they're corrupt that they're badly managed that they need oversight either by the state governments or by the national government and I've been pushing against those two narratives for a very long time
0: hmm. um, so so one question that kind of came up and and you talk about this quite a bit in the book and so um, you know I'd, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this so so Right. As you were saying, there's this long literature and there's a lot of influential thinking that cities, in a sense, are like highly constrained. And you talk about this idea of cities as products, right? That some way that um, city governments are selling a suite of policies, um, amenities that they provide, a set of tax policies that go along with those amenities. And then the market is the market for capital, like who's going to locate their you know, in the old days we would say factories <laughs> right. but you know whatever capital stuff uh, that we're moving around and then for for workers and for residents and for retirees or for whatever else um and that you know as you say that's a very influential view and it seems like there's two parts of it so one is the existence of that market that there are markets for capital and for people um and that cities are in that market in some general sense and then there's kind of a second view which is about what the ideal set of policies are that are going to kind of arise out of that market or that cities are going to be more successful with. And it seems like those aren't necessarily the same, like there could be a market, but you know what people's views about what that suite of policies are could be mistaken. So, so which, so you're, you're arguing against the standard view. So which part of that view are you arguing against? Is it that uh, cities aren't really in this competition And it actually doesn't matter too much what they do um, in the the sense that people and firms will locate one way or the other kind of irrespective of what cities are up to. Or is it that, you know, maybe the standard, uh, you know, understanding of what the suite of policies are that is most likely to benefit cities in terms of attracting capital and labor. We've got that wrong.
1: Yeah, so it's 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 great question. Um, it's a it's it's a little bit of both. Although the former, and this is where it gets a little um, it's it's a little unconventional kind of argument. the the argument that um, f- uh, ver- various folks have articulated in this various ways, but the argument that um, uh, businesses, a factory, or a, or a firm, or individuals, essentially look out into the world and um, and then uh, uh, make a location decision as if they were consumers in the in the in a in a general marketplace. is quite powerful, as you've as you've said, and it comes out of literature from uh, uh, Tebow, who this guy said, you know, people. Vote with their feet They, mm-hmm. they decide they're going to move To say into the city or into the suburbs Or into a particular metropolitan area um, uh, And They do so in part at least, based on the available uh, amenities in those places, including presumably what kind of tax rate uh, is in that place, and what what kinds of things you get in exchange for that tax rate, like good schools or other kinds of things like that. Um, and this this can explain some level. It's called, we might call it sorting or something else. Right. There's, there's a beneficial aspect to this, which is everybody gets what they want. They go, and this is, the, this is the benefit of decentralized local government, which is people vote with their feet, and then people's preferences are, are obtained by their location choices. So there's the book talks about how some of these things are, uh, that some of this is mistaken. The first mistake is to mistake that sorting Mm-hmm. For a theory of economic growth, so they're not the same thing. So what we, what we might say is, well, people sort into various things, and then we often move very quickly to saying, well, this the city that's deindustrializing, or a city that's losing population. Well, they've they've failed in this consumer chase, this hunt mm. for 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 businesses or. Or residents, and that failure is why they're declining, say, economically in space, right? Because that's what a, a city. We're not sure what a city is. A city is presumably the activity of the people in a particular location, in, right. in a particular spatial location, and so we've made a mistake sometimes in in assuming that economic growth and a tr- and and residential sorting or. Or firm sorting is the same thing, and they're not. We actually don't have great theories about economic growth in the world. We think we know sometimes what causes economic growth, but we don't. We we we, we should have some some modesty about that. And I think that applies to cities and metropolitan areas as well. So one thing I say in the book is we should be skeptical of claims that a city has failed because it it's losing population. You 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 might say about that, oh, they've just failed to provide the kinds of goods and services and tax rates that attract people, and therefore mm-hmm. they're losing population. But a different account is we've got uh, we've got um, a, a mystery of economic growth. How does economic growth happen in a place which usually is accompanied by population? It doesn't have to be accompanied by increased population, but normally is. How, what are the mysteries of economic growth? And it turns out economic geographers aren't have other accounts that have nothing to do with sorting among consumers making location preferences. So, I think that's a mistake, and what that mistake leads to is folks saying, you should be doing this, this, and this, right? You should have a great downtown business district and arts. and. And all, all these amenities and all these great things, you should have more bars and more restaurants that are open later right. and a nightlife and a, and, a, and a football team and a baseball. And that'll make your city great. And it turns out all cities are doing all of those things all the time, but it doesn't actually change outcomes over time. And so we should stop doing that. We should right. stop pursuing a bunch of fads. This is a at, at the local pause, and this goes to your second part. A bunch of fads, which is oh, we'll build the downtown mall. That'll attract new people. We'll we'll put in uh you know we'll put in a stadium. That'll attract new people. And we often make mistakes thinking that the thing we did caused. The say the uptick in population, right. or the or 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 on the other side a down a a downward spiral in population. So we make mistakes by saying, well, the problem with Detroit's. Decline was bad management. They just didn't do invest in the right kinds of things Mm -hmm. And then on the other side we say oh the the resurgence of New York City and the resurgence of all these cities actually all over the globe is Is because they made some other kinds of choices? Well, it turns out No one predicted the urban resurgence of the last two decades or more. And the reason they didn't predict it is because we actually don't have any idea what has caused the urban resurgence. We still don't know. And so the book addresses this too. So I think the the, the argument of the book is a little bit complicated in the following sense is is it says you can't in fact control these things that you think you can but you can control some other things and the other things you can do is just provide good municipal services even when you're in an economic downturn you might need help from other levels of government to do that but in fact we're going to see booms and busts in in cities um, and we've seen that all throughout history and to attribute false causes to those booms and busts is a real mistake
0: yeah super interesting and just to kind of clarify when you talk about a city failing i think what i take that to mean is actually the city government failing in some sense like cities go up as you said there's kind of you know there's growth there's decline and i guess one question is do you think that those those are really policy independent processes, like say city policy. Yeah, independent processes, or is it just that we don't know what the? Because I take the point <laughs> right. that we don't know what the policies are that contribute to or you know detract from growth. Although I can imagine. Because part of it is like, I can, there's got to be policies that would be bad for economic growth. You know, like, I mean, if you just like, what their policy is going to be is we're going to like tear down every single building or not allow a single thing to get built or have tax rates of 50% of income or whatever. Like, that's not going to be good for, that's not going to be good for economic growth, right? But within the, you know, kind of on the margins or within the policy space of what we kind of think of as like reasonable, you know, policies that a cities might actually adopt, maybe we don't have much of an idea about what actually contributes to growth or not. But I guess, yeah, so the question back to you is, do you think it's a, it's an epistemic issue that <laughs> we, we don't know what the answer is? Or is it literally, it could just be independent? Like, you know, it's like a, a sickness, like to a certain extent, that's under my control, but I can get sick for reasons that are entirely outside of my control as well.
1: Yeah. So I, th- I think uh, it, it... It may be both, and it's mm. it's really tricky to disentangle, sure. but it's the super interesting question, which is, and again, I'm not a growth economist, and so I don't have, uh, we have lots of, there's plenty of theories okay. out there of how you induce growth, say, in a whole continent like Africa, right. or in countries in a continent, or it's, so it's at every scale. There's lots of questions about how we do this, and then policy does follow from that. So actually, you got to get your debt under control, or you right. can't be protectionist, or right. the Washington consensus, and then we find out well that didn't really work very well. And theories of other, other theories of growth: democracies are going to grow faster, let's say, than author, authoritarian regimes. But then you you get counterexamples. Federal systems will grow better than. Uh, centralized systems, but of course, then you get you get counterexamples to that too. So I think when we're talking about the relationship between institutions and growth, there is a strong argument that, uh, or a strong uh, a strong group of scholars who say institutions really matter for growth a lot. Right, whether you're whether you're, you've are you got uh, institutions of private property, right?
0: I know North Korea doesn't look like it's doing right, a great job. Right,
1: doesn't look like it's doing a great job. But within, a, and I agree, within a range though, it's not entirely clear, right, that this is what's doing the work. So the relationship between institutions and growth is, I think, quite a fraught one, despite some very optimistic kind of views on this or very strong views on this. My own view is institutions and growth have they're going to have some relationship and the question is at what scale so what's interesting is right jane jacobs uh the famous urbanist right um patron saint of the book patron saint of the book for for sure (laughs) she's she's she appears many many times over as as she does for many urban you know urbanists who've been influenced by her work um you know she had a she she was trying to write about cities, right? In um, in much of her work, and a lot of um, a, um, um, a lot of her work is not um, as uh, as read as um, her her most famous book, which is the the Death and Life of Great American Cities. But um, she also wrote. Uh, uh, Books like The Cities and the Wealth of Nations, right? And some of these other, other later books. And she was trying to figure out what generates growth, actually, I think, at the end of the day. And she, uh, economists have come to appreciate some of her th- insights, which was one of which is uh, this idea of um, agglomeration or externalities of the fact that the space in the city generates knowledge, between industries and between the same industry, um, and that generates knowledge that leads to economic de- uh, development. Mm-hmm. And those Jane Jacobs externalities have been um, have been recognized in some ways, or that's how they've been called by by economists. So her her account, and it was an attempt again to look at growth, was that if you have a, a and this was at the at the very lowest level, at the neighborhood level, at the block level, at the street level. If you have a diversity of uses, a mixture of, of types of industry, of types of small business, of types of people, of types of housing... That will generate a vibrant and um, an economically uh, dynamic place, which she called the city. So she said, the city is where this happens. This is where economic growth happens, not in not in regions, not in the hinterlands, not in rural areas, but in cities. And the city does this work. And so there is uh, a kind of theory of growth that is is quite closely connected with the nature of the city itself. That does inform my book uh, on city power, but I don't, I don't feel like I need to um, endorse it wholeheartedly. I'm sympathetic to it, but I think it's enough to say, hey, those traditional, those conventional things you think you're supposed to do are, are really not really in your control. And so, in fact, you should be doing some other things. So yeah, so
0: that actually sounds like a different thing. <laughs> that yeah. sounds like there are things that that cities can do. It's just that it's not what we think that they are. So those this yeah again, this kind of strikes me as the as a as a as a tension in some way in the, in the argument that because on the one hand it could be that these are just policy independent processes, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. you know that you've. You know, Detroit maybe is an example of there's just globalization and trade and none of that is under Detroit's control. Like maybe it's not policy independent in the sense that like, you know, trade policy is part of the picture, but there's just these big systems, you know, systemic things happening at regional, national and global levels that are, you know, bad for Detroit or, you know, climate change is, you know, in a hundred years, Phoenix and Tucson and Miami, might not look as vibrant as they look today, right? And it's not because of anything that had to do with the management of those particular cities. It's just that, like, Miami's underwater and, you know, right, right. Phoenix is like 150 degrees. Right, so right. it's not going to be that much, but it will be hot, a heck of a lot hotter. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so there's that. The, the, these are just, their processes that are, uh, you know, kind of pol- policy independent in the sense of, at that scale, at the scale of the city, but on yeah. the other hand, you know that the argument that you were just providing is more like, well, no, we could if we create these vibrant and diverse communities that have certain characteristics, that's actually going to lead to to development. I, you know, growth is a funny word because that usually just yes. means like GDP. Let's just say development in a positive sense, right? Yep, yeah, Yep. Yeah. And so that's actually very policy oriented, and there's all kinds of policies that we could do to disrupt that. Um, that process from happening. There's things that we could do to foster that from happening. So is it just that, so where's the mistake? Is, is Or is it just, a? it's a mix of mistakes.
1: Yeah,
0: so go ahead. It's
1: totally fair. And I think, um, I try to capture this in the first chapter of the book by talking about a number of, of ways. And we actually do this constantly and we do it in one sentence. We'll mix different accounts. Mm-hmm. So one account is, um, as you pointed out the city is a product in the location marketplace or the mm-hmm. local government marketplace and you can improve your product and then you get consumers. They walk around and they get the they get the product they want. And if you do a good job, you get more population and more wealth. And if you do a bad job, uh, the opposite happens. And when we talk about cities declining because of corruption or bad government, that's partially what we're we, we're suggesting. That's the kind of claim we're making. Like they made a mistake or they taxed the wrong people or they they, they made an error or, or or the governor or the mayor, sorry, was um, was corrupt. Or that could also be attributed to some other level of government, right? You could say, well, in this, uh, the legislature did some bad things or Congress did some bad things and that affected the city too. So it doesn't have to be them, but it's still a product, conception of the city as a product. Another conception of the city, which you've art- articulated also is as a byproduct of large-scale s- right. social forces, one of those might be just technology. So one of the big ones is for folks who look at the growth of cities, they say air conditioning, big deal right. for the Sun sunbelt. Automobile, huge, right? Affects the city. Allowed for the uh, the dispersal of people outside the city. Uh, the internet, uh, IT, is a huge thing that people say. Well, this is a structural force that allows for the dispersal of of people because now they can they can live wherever they want, right? And once you've once you've reduced uh, once you've reduced uh, transportation and communication costs to zero or close to zero, you, you're not going to have cities anymore. Now, yeah. the problem with the, just to say the problem, I've talked a little bit about the problem with the product product account. The byproduct account is also just often uh, just often um, wrong, right? So, if it's true that the IT revolution should allow people to live wherever they want, then our cities should have declined in the. In the first half of the twentieth century, and in fact, they, they their populations tended to stabilize or increase. And again, well, this not
0: could be sorry to interrupt, but yeah, that yeah. could be that's not necessarily a ding on the byproduct theory in general. That's just a ding on a particular
1: a certain application. Right? Yeah. Um, so but the 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 fact that we're not quite sure what the effects of a certain technology are mm-hmm. on that suggests to me that our our accounts are still pretty primitive right mm-hmm. so another account would be oh the um uh, and this is you often see this uh, cities developed where uh, at the at the terminus of railroads mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. roads. This is, a, this is this seems obvious because when you look at the map, you see cities. <laughs> right. at the terminus. But it turns out there are lots of cities that could have been at the at, right. at those locations. And Jacobs points this out in one of her books. He's like there there were hundreds of cities that mm-hmm. had deep water ports or had or, or could have been placed in, in a perfectly a fine place for uh, railroad transportation, and certain ones did and certain ones did not uh, uh, come to be and and survive. And if you look at the competition between Chicago and St. Louis, um, often there's a bunch of accounts that that say, well, the reason Chicago wins is because of X, Y, and Z. But it turns out none of that is clear except Mm -hmm. in hindsight, and that's especially true of our more recent accounts of how cities have come back. So for example, New York City in the 70s, you wouldn't have bet on New York City real estate in yeah, the really. 70s when yep. the city is in dramatic decline in lots of ways, maybe overstated actually, but in a budget budgetary crisis and a fiscal crisis. And 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 now then you have to tell a new story as to why in in twenty twenty two the city has the just the 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 value of housing in the city so and land is so high. So there's some stories that we tell, but they're they're quite incomplete on the byproduct. Mm-hmm. So how do I solve all this? I don't really. So to be fair, I think we should be modest. I I I like the account of the city as a process, mm-hmm. to try to think about it not as a product or as a byproduct of technological factors, but and this borrows again from Jacobs um, as a kind of organic, um, uh, a kind of organic uh, phenomena which occur, and I think the economic geog- the economic geographers have some of this embedded into their models of how city populations rise and fall or how city growth rises and fall. And it's complicated. It's complicated, but it's, it. I think we make mistakes when we, when we, when maybe we use the wrong analogies.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. And as you were, you were kind of just t- talking through this one way to just maybe run this by you to see if it, it works is, you know, there's the city is the process, And that's obviously that's a very open textured description of a thing as a process, (laughs) but one you know, and again, trying to think about the relationship of you know, kind of policy independent stuff that's happening versus you know stuff that does depend on policy and so on, is you know, in some ways, kind of we could abstract away from the markets that the markets in a certain sense that cities are embedded in. Like we could say, okay, let's imagine the cities. Have a fixed amount of capital and a fi- and their, their existing population, and that that firms can't leave and they can't enter, and that people can't leave and they can't enter, like just as an abstraction. Mm-hmm. And then you've got cities like that, and you have different policies in in different cities, right? Yeah. As a consequence of those different policies, there will be differences in outcomes, or at least in in theory, there could be differences in outcomes, right? So it would be like if a city said, our policy is, you know, we're going to do zoning such that you know there's just going to be a neighborhood of hospitals and a neighborhood of schools and a neighborhood of residences and we're going to separate everything out into different zones and then there's another city that says we're going to integrate everything and there's going to be you know commercial mixed-use residential education embedded you know that kind of thing yeah and that those different people can't move right so it's less than a tebow thing right Yeah. this is just you know we've got these different ways of structuring cities and that it sounds like on your theory that could have consequences for how the cities develop over time. Um, it's, it's not going to be through this sorting mechanism, but it'll be through this more like processed organic kind of mechanism.
1: So I think it's plausible. I, the, 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 the thing is that, um, um, and again, this is Jacobs is that cities and, and um, and the way I like to think about them is that cities have these effects over long distances. So a closed system is is almost um, antithetical to the definition, <laughs> in a way, right? Because materials are being brought in, trade is happening, right, inside and outside the city. Um, um, you you could have a kind of a closed system, but then you're playing a game. You're playing like a Monopoly game or like a board game, and this like things, games like Sim City appeared like this. You put up your stuff and you make then then you you hope that your city survives, mm-hmm. and in fact in those kinds of games, sometimes your city you make the badge the bad land use choice and the city declines, right? <laughs> you make mm-hmm. the good land use choice and the city prospers. It's a closed system. But of course, no city is really a closed system and um, in fact, uh, almost definitionally a city is is having uh, um, effects well beyond its borders Mm -hmm. in lots of different—environmentally, of course, we know that. They're taking water and supplies and food from the hinterlands and bringing them in. Certain kinds of regions are doing—and then trade, and then they're inventing things in cities. Lots of invention goes on in cities, and those inventions are being used to make more efficient agriculture outside the city. So it's very hard to talk about a closed system. It's something we're inclined to do because we want to isolate the— the kind of policies, yeah. but I, I, you know, I'm going to resist that a little bit, for, uh, 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 because I think it is a little bit antithetical to the, to the 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 nature of the of right. Another way to think about this is, urbanization is just a phenomenon, right? So we could just talk about urbanization, and then. We don't have a city necessarily or a suburb or a rural area. We just have a kind of a, uh, a, a, a sociological phenomena. And then we can talk about, well, when do we see urbanization? When do we not? And certainly we, can, we have theories about that too. But again, a lot of this is um, using analogies that don't quite match up with um, what we see in the real world.
0: Yes. Well. Okay. So. So then. <laughs> so then. Maybe this does take us back to. So I keep going back to the. You know. Flipping between these different positions, yeah. which is that it doesn't matter what cities do. Like city policies could yes. be whatever. It's like literally they could just be whatever they are. Whatever. Like we, we could throw darts <laughs> at a policy <laughs> <laughs> dartboard, <laughs> and like it's just has will have no effects on development in a city, um, because there's just it's just other because there's other processes that – because policy just
1: isn't an input into that output i guess right that's that, that would be the, the thing yeah that's the the strong claim would be no policies i i don't think i would embrace the strongest claim because as you as you point out you know if you expropriate everybody's land and you right tell them <laughs> he's to he's go shoot everybody right, I and mean, if they, you shoot everybody <laughs> that's a policy we could right, we can be and Part of it is how do you define what we're talking about, right? So the uh-huh. city is the city, the people in the city, the city, yeah, the I mean, firms sure. in the city? Is it right. just the value of the land, the dirt in the city? Is mm-hmm. it the city government? And we often mix those up too.
0: Right. But say we could do we could probably I mean there might be different ways of talking about something like that, but presumably we could get at least a passable definition so that we could
1: at least yes, have a conversation. Yeah, yes, yeah. certainly. Certainly. So again I again I'm I'm, I'm not resistant to this to the strong form of the argument. I think I am uh, resisted to the weak form of the argument, which is that specific policies will have, um, um, well, I think in terms of economic growth, and let, let me be really clear about this, I think we're still not quite sure what does it. The urban...
0: It sounds actually more and more that we're radically unsure about what does it.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. If we knew, if we knew even a bit about mm-hmm. it, we would actually uh, have predicted the urban resurgence, or someone would have said, "Yeah, in 20 years, 30 years, this will this will come to pass." Detroit will, uh, and it, we would have we would have been able to predict maybe the decline too, right? So in 1950s, Detroit has the largest population in the United States, or one of the largest, and is, the, is the, just the leading edge of the leading technology of the time, right. which is the automobile. And now we turn around 50, 75 years later, and, um, and the population of the city is half that or less, and mm-hmm. uh, the wealth is certainly um, is, is, is certainly less. So we, we would be able to make some, some claims about that. And I just don't think we're, we're capable of doing that. Now, what do I see, say the city can do? Well, the city can engage in, therefore, and should, and now we're talking about within a range of policies, right? I don't want them to shoot everybody. Or I don't want them, can pursue, um, instead of pursuing growth, right? Which seems like a vain and, and costly enterprise with a lot of mistakes for lots of for the reasons you've stated, but um, it may be because we don't know how to do it, or because um, um, it, it, nothing we do can have an effect. And I, again, I'm going to toggle between those a little bit. But what we can do is provide basic municipal services well to the people that exist in that place, right? right? As a matter of social justice, not as a matter of growth-seeking, the problem—and this is gets back to the thesis of the book—the problem is that we think of cities as mostly uh, as mostly agents that are supposed to be growth-seeking, not justice-seeking. And that just seems like a terrible mistake.
0: Yeah. No, I think it's a, a really interesting move, right, From to go from where we're—what we were just talking about, which is the, you know, the lack— of autonomy, in a sense, or the lack of agency, the inability to influence this feature that's very important, which is economic growth, uh, again, either for epistemic reasons or for you know, just because the structure of things, but you actually see this as liberating.
1: Yes, as, <laughs>
0: that's As right. as as unleashing city power, Correct. it's actually the inability to affect growth that is that is liberating. So, yeah, how do you, how do you make that move? And then, yeah, you know, what are what are some, what are some of the areas that you see is this kind of this new this new. This new power, this new liberty, um, yeah. you know, being important.
1: Well, because what it does is it, uh, by saying, "Listen, we don't have the, we don't have very much control over growth, uh, or at least growth seeking seems like a pretty challenging task uh, for for all the reasons we've stated, and we should be modest about that." The, by the same token, the policies that folks say are going to retard growth are also not proven, right? And so that means that cities are liberated to do some of the policies that folks would have said they can't do, like redistribution. So folks would say you can't tax people or impose a minimum wage or lots of other things um, because the, the wealthy residents or firms or businesses will just... Uh, move across the border. They'll move right. from the city into the suburbs, uh, or they'll move, you know, out of Detroit to, you know, to to someplace else. And um, and this is this is the common view of the limited city and um, city power is kind of a play on uh, uh, a book from the '80s by Paul Peterson called City Limits, mm. which basically made this argument that the there's no way the city because it's a territorially defined. Uh, jurisdiction that doesn't have control outside of it, to any extent, um, the territorially defined city can't redistribute. It can't do very much at all in terms of moving moving resources around. What they can fight about in the city is developmental spending, essentially, and that's sometimes that's you know that's a fight, but it's not that. Imp- important. They're all kind of headed in the same direction. And this explained in part why the politics of the city was so focused on things like land use and, Mm -hmm. and, and, and the business community, right? Mm -hmm. You needed the business community on board to get the city, blah, 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 blah. So, um, so I'm, the liberating part, and you, you make the point nicely is that You can also do policies that they would have said will hurt your city, and that's not going to hurt your city either. And one of those policies might be, for example, adopting a minimum wage, right, or a living wage or environmental legislation or regulation or so on. And we've seen cities do that and not lose population. We've also seen and continue to see differentials in tax rates between cities and suburbs, and the cities are thriving in high-tax jurisdictions. Now, it might be because... Those residents have a preference for high-tax jurisdictions or so on. But it also just might be that those policies don't actually have the effects on growth that, that folks had, had thought they they would have.
0: Yeah. Great. And so um, there's a couple of things I wanted to kind of jump off from from there. But maybe one, just to kind of – this is kind of still setting the stage a little bit, is – you know, there's intercity competition and there's intra-city competition. Again, depending on how we define a city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you know that border that you were talking about. Um, yeah. it, it actually seems it's it's and you know in a portion of the book you talk about this a, a fair amount is yeah. That is that does seem like there's some action at, at that border that that yeah. firms or individuals locate on one side or another. I mean, certainly people locate where they, to where they think schools are good within a jurisdiction or across jurisdictions. Um, you know, firms may move within within a municipal catchment basin whatever, yeah, right, uh, you know whatever right, right. we would say yeah. where you're getting those you know uh aggregation benefits you know you're yeah. you're around you're in the exciting fun metropolitan area but if yeah. you can be in the exciting fun metropolitan area and take a you know avoid a 10 income tax right. uh by by moving two blocks right a lot of people are gonna at least there's gonna be some pressure to do that so yes is what's up with that like how, how do you um, think about the distinction between intercity versus intracity competition and um because and because you were just saying you know you can you seem to be able to persist with some higher tax rates in metropolitan areas but that doesn't necessarily mean that nobody's moving to the suburbs right, right. Um, you know because of how we've drawn these lines
1: yeah so I think I think um, yeah. To be careful about this. I, you know, the lines matter certainly. And for a long time. And when I teach local government law and, and, and we, we, we talk a lot about the line between the city and the suburb and the, the, the ability to flee, um, mm-hmm. flee juris, the jurisdiction. Um, we talk a lot about um, annexation and the, the ability for a city to grow in, in its borders so that it has more taxable land. There's some basic, there's some basic facts, which is a city, uh, only really gets to tax. It's, um, uh, in many cases, it's, it's, it's main revenue source is a property tax and the property tax is just what's in the jurisdiction. you you increase the jurisdiction, you got more property tax. You limit the jurisdiction, you've got less. That also is, uh, is the case for the, the amount of population in the city your city's um constrained in its borders the city qua city is now um um it constrained in in um in its jurisdiction that doesn't mean that the metropolitan area can't be understood as a big city right it's the lines between these jurisdictions are usually invisible to most mm-hmm. of us um as we cross them which we do regularly when we live in a metropolitan area and um and and in fact, might there might not be any physical difference for some time when you cross into an into another place? Yep. Um, so um, I think there is there is some sorting certainly that's going on in these places. Somebody might be like, well, we lived in a in a in an apartment in the city, and we've decided to move to the suburbs because we want more space,
0: as people right? say. Yeah.
1: Um, or, or we were we are moving for schools and so on. That you know i think that that it's plausible to talk in those terms and and cities have to think about those things but again what the urban resurgence proved to us was those factors aren't as as big or even close to being as significant as as other things that we we have not been able to identify so for example Folks were saying for a long time, you have to improve the schools in the city before people will move mm-hmm. back to the city, right? You have to improve the schools. That's got to be the first thing. That's got to precede population shifts into the city. And mm-hmm. we just haven't seen that. It's not that schools got really great and then that attracted yep. suburbanites back into the city. It's that, in fact... Lots of people started to move into the city, or 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 start stay. to stay in the city, and then the schools improved thereafter. Which actually, when you think about it, makes a certain amount of sense, um, because um, if you had highly segregated poor schools, once you start to to um, have have a, a little bit more diversity in terms of incomes and so on, the schools are gonna are gonna are are probably gonna get better. Um, Um, so I think, um, I think when, when we look at the causes of either population increase or decrease in cities, again, as I've been saying, we often look at the wrong thing and then we attribute it to other things like crime. For example, we say, well, well, crime went down and that's why the cities have uh, now done better or resurging or populations are stabilizing. Crime's a real problem. It's gotta be solved. It's 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 um it's something that cities should be doing is making sure their citizens are safe um, uh, um, but there's not a ton of evidence that shows that there was a crime decline prior to people starting to move back into cities. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, in European cities and other places around the globe where there's also been urban resurgence where people are moving back into the cities, there was never a serious crime problem to begin with in these places. So, in fact, it's that can't be the explanation. So uh, part of this is coming at this backwards, which is not from a grand theory, but saying, well, what is our accounts? of what you can do and what you can't do or what causes um, what causes people to make certain kinds of choices. Um, I like to use the example of the downtown mall in Charlottesville in my class. So Charlottesville, small city, quite constrained in its borders, limited taxing ability, um, was in in decline in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, in the way that much larger cities were also in decline, but just on a much smaller scale. People moving out to the suburbs, classic kind of white flight kind of narrative, and they put in a downtown walking pedestrian mall, close off a street in the in the um, in the 90s, and then everybody says that's what resulted in the urban resurgence of Charlottesville. Charlottesville now much more popular place, stabilized population, high property values in lots of places, lots of demand for downtown living. All of this much different than 20 years before or 25 years before. And then you you point out that the downtown mall that that Charlottesville did, put in place, was um, a fad that many cities put in. In the 70s and 80s, they all built downtown pedestrian malls trying to compete with the suburbs for people and consumer dollars and so on. And most of those cities took them out after a number of years because they weren't working and it was clear that they were just a waste of time and money. Charlottesville was late to the game, put in its pedestrian mall, and then just didn't have the resources to take it out not that they were even thinking about it it just didn't actually cause anything <laughs> at least in the in the kind of shorter medium term and yet what we do is look at the downtown mall and say oh that's that was a cause of the of the resurgence of downtown charlottesville in fact there is a huge gap in time between the downtown mall being put in and any kind of identifiable resurgence in the city so again, here's a, here's a causal story about policy, right? A specific kind of land use policy. And, um, we're often misled because we think we see causation and we don't.
0: Um, great. Yeah. So this, this kind of gets us back into the, the, the prior obsession, but I'm, I'm super interested in this. So I kind of keep wanting to dig on it, even though there's (laughs) lots of different things that we could talk about. Like, 'Cause that's that, you know, that is a the almost like a, a classic problem with how we do humans like attribute causes to things, right? Correlations and then they, they say causation. Um, how could we, you know, you're 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 re- very conversant with the literature on on all this and people have been thinking about all of it for a really long time. Um, you know, there's the possibility that these are policy independent, at least within the, a range of reasonable policies. Right. There's also the possibility that we just don't know that maybe the mall did. You know, Maybe these right, guys right, made a mistake right. by tearing out their malls, or right? right. who knows? Like, we, it's very hard because we would need a counterfactual of another yes. Charlottesville with the you know without a downtown mall. But you know, these okay. kinds of um, challenges we we face them in lots of social scientific con- contexts where you know we don't know what the effects of different things are in the world. Um, you know, different curricular policies, how to manage schools, how to deal with, you know, prisoner reentry or, you know, crime control or whatever else. And, you know, I I think, you know, we do a terrible job of of funding and structuring research to actually be able to figure out how how, uh, public policy, you know, and government spending and lots of other things actually do or do not change the world. But what can we learn about, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> is it possible to learn about cities and policies and the kinds of policies that assuming, or, it, you know, or even just find out that there are no policies that matter, or, you know, if there are policies that they do matter, because it, it could be two options. There, it could be, there's actually three different possibilities, I, I, maybe more, but three pop to mind. So there's, it's policy independent altogether. That's one possibility. The other one is that it, it matters for policy, policy matters rather for outcomes, but we just don't know what the answer is, you know, because we haven't done the research. And the other possibility would be that policy matters, but it's so context specific that there's no amount of information that we could ever collect that would give us a reasonable basis for deciding in this particular context, this policy would matter. Right, so right. it matters in a kind of counterfactual sense yeah. in a broad way, but like, we'll never get to the point where we actually know because things will change. Like by the time we know what's good for for city policy now in the, you know, Atlantis, Atlantic coast kind of region of the United States with the existing suite of policy, uh, sorry, with the existing suite of technology, like yeah. technology and trade and the global circumstances will have changed such that, all of the knowledge that we had prior is just worthless. Like the same way that like the policies that were a good idea in like 1840, right. which have nothing to do with what's good policy today. Right. So right. Is, is that where are we just, where it's like the worst of both worlds where it matters what we do, but we can never know. Like, <laughs> or have have a reasonable basis right. for making decisions?
1: Well, so <laughs> I'd rather not opine on the, the, the giant question, which is like, can our social science, get, you know, improve, improve, uh you know uh, uh welfare and global outcomes i think there are things right we know that um that clean water is really great, right? For um, for, for for people's health. Maybe and, I don't know maybe to be rich. Maybe, maybe we don't know. Anything. Maybe we need to but I think drinkable water is pretty great. Probably and good. uh and sewage systems and Sewages uh, are awesome, yes. yeah true. are pretty yeah. good. And yeah. so um, having those uh, does improve if we just take a take you know health outcomes or death mm-hmm. or, or death outcomes. Cholera, uh, right? Right, yeah, right. Sure. Um, 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 life experience Expectancy and so on, and so I, you know, this, this, that's a, that's, that's at the, at the macro level, at the city level, uh, that's basically what I push, which is, don't try to, uh, what, what Charlottesville shouldn't have done is say, oh, we need downtown, and maybe politically, this is what ends up happening, because it often does, is, oh, we need a downtown mall to help get the downtown businesses. Uh, uh, help the downtown businesses compete with the indoor mall in the suburbs, right? And um, the indoor mall is taking up all the all the all the all the uh, space here, and we need to do something to do that. You know, my uh, and this goes for lots of kinds of city local based policies land use of various kinds and stadium construction and so on and so forth um, also just subsidizing businesses to come in right mm-hmm. industry businesses uh, or industry subsidies are a big huge uh, expenditure and um, and it's there's lots of evidence that they don't work right. so I'm not opposed to to to, to, to to looking at evidence, right? I in fact cite a lot of evidence in the book. Uh, for example, that these industry subsidies don't work. Right. Is, lots, is, lots
0: of evidence that things don't work. Yeah, lots of evidence right.
1: things don't work. So my my uh, my recommendation to cities is, um, um, if you know, if we're on a clean slate and you, you're you're relatively stable and um, or or um, trying to remain stable as a place with the with the population, invest in the basic. Municipal services that um, that um, improve the lot of the the people that are already there. Mm -hmm. Don't go trying to attract new people or other people. Just invest in the things that um, improve the livelihoods and lives of the the people in place. This is important because we often, again, I think a lot of our city policies are intended for people that don't live there yet. (laughs) (laughs) Because the city is like, we got to attract those people because they have to bring tax base and other kinds of goodies to us. And then what ends up happening, and we see this over and over, is that the the poor and the working class basically get chased around the metropolitan region. That mm-hmm. is, there's no place that wants them. And there's no investment in the basic infrastructure that would allow those people to um, have some mobility into the into the middle class, for example, and stay in place, right? This is another thing. We just expect that people or have in the past, at least expected, that people will start in a certain part of the metropolitan region and will move. Right. right to other jurisdictions because that's their ladder of life. That's the next stage. Mm-hmm. That's where they're supposed to go. They're supposed to be young and and not have children in the city, and then they're supposed to move to the suburbs and right. then re- move to a retirement village somewhere. And what we've done is we've got this kind of sorting and segregation that happens. And in fact, that's not what the city should be about in, in any way. It should have a diversity of people, ages, types, um uh, uh socioeconomic right. groups. And that, I think, again, going back to Jacobs, is a way you have a diverse, um, robust, and might have, and I don't want to plonk down on this, might have beneficial economic growth effects too, Right, but, but I you don't want to commit to that. I don't and have you could to commit it. to that. Yeah, you, you don't need right? that, right? I you all, could just say... Right.
0: You know, it's just good because because I think in a way that's the power of this liberating mo- movement that you make is just to yes. say we don't know or we can't do anything about growth, and so let's just do things that we think are good. So if we want a mall, let's have a mall, and it's got right. nothing to do with competing with anybody, um, and that's the, that's how we should make these decisions basically. And, and it's interesting because there's always I think even for you who are like a very strong, uh, uh, you know, like you, you have as as strong a, a view on this as, as anybody, probably there's yeah. still like a little bit that wants to say, mm, but maybe it'll be good for growth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, it's true, right? You get, you get sucked in and I, I, I said it hesitantly, but you know, I don't want to say it. I, in fact, right. I want to keep it out. Uh, yeah, it might it out. Be, and that's because Jacob says it is right. right she is and right. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to throw her under the bus because, right. Uh, so I, I don't want to commit to that though. I don't yeah. think that's, and, and it's not the reason to act. Right. And, right. That's and, right. So and I, think I say in could... the book, the reason to act is for justice, not for growth. And, and, you know, it's possible one day we'll know exactly what's good for growth. And it might be, for example, human capital, right? There's education or something yeah. like that. Or the liberation of women. I think that's a pretty good thing, right, for growth or can be. Or there's uh, You know, honestly, who knows, be. right? But I think there's something to be maybe, said about who
0: knows, right? right? Yeah, maybe it's not, but that doesn't, Right. it wouldn't even provide us a reason with not doing it, though, I don't think. Like especially in certain it
1: cases. It shouldn't like provide us a reason right. for not doing it. And, and again, what's important to me on the city side is that we also shouldn't be constrained by the opposite, which is the claims about what causes growth are also the claims about what retards growth. And right. those things are often anti-redistributive in, right. in important ways And and um, and and favor, uh, and this is a big part of the book, which we haven't talked that much about favor mobile capital, right. mobile capital being footloose capital and cities are immobile. Mobile capital is all over the globe. And the, the idea has always been, or at least a model of what a city is, is that they have to attract that capital. Right. Um, and I'm, I'm quite vociferously opposed to that model.
0: So, so again, there's a bunch of stuff we could talk about. but I, I wanted to maybe press on this a little bit more, too, just because, I, you know, it is really important. It's kind of the core of a lot of the arguments that you make. So let's talk about redistribution. So yeah. as you note in the book, you know, some cities have engaged in some redistributional measures, like um, I think, you know, you talk quite a bit about the, the minimum tax yeah. uh, regimes, living wages, and so on. Yeah. So, so I'll 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 uh, disclose my <laughs> my priors <laughs> on this, yep. which is I see the minimum minimum wage and 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 you know that that specific policy yeah. is pretty weak sauce as a redistributional measure. Mm, okay. Um, and the reason I think that is because well Jeff Bezos doesn't care what the minimum <laughs> right, wage is, right. That's right. and anything that Jeff <laughs> Bezos doesn't care about can't be redistributional, and right. it's right. mostly redistributing between you know. Uh, you know, worker, people who rely on minimum wage workers, right? Yep, so yep, you, yep. that isn't the richest people in society. Yep. So their prices go up a little bit. And then minimum wage workers, some of them see price, you know, see a wage increase. And, you know, there's always the worry with minimum wage that, that it could lead to some increase in unemployment that we yes. have fewer employed people. Now there's the, the evidence on this is highly mixed. And at the minimum wage levels that we're talking about, um, it doesn't really seem to have much of an effect on employment, right. uh, not much of a measurable effect. Um, and it's not surprising that cities would be able to get away with some higher minimum wages because wages are higher in cities, right? Because yes. cost of living is higher, and so it's not like super surprising that average, well, average wages in San Francisco are going to be higher than average wages in, you know, rural Alabama. And then, you know, so you can you can just. Or even look like, at the lowest wage, and so you can boost up the, the, you can boost up the minimum wage in San Francisco yeah, yeah. without as much of a consequence. And I think most people agree that if you were to have a fifty dollar an hour minimum wage, that would probably pretty clearly have kind of <laughs> contribute to unemployment. Um, and so there's really a fairly limited amount of redistribution that we can do with the with a, you know, minimum wage policy, as opposed to things like. Taxes on billionaires and millionaires that you then use to fund a a universal basic income or a wealth tax or, you know, a really serious kind of value-added tax, again, that then is used to fund, you know, uh, wage support or UBI or uh, earned income tax credit or a suite of other really serious, you know, uh housing subsidies you know food subsidies energy subsidies, whatever you want to do that could actually take a big chunk of money from the wealthiest people in society and move it over to the poorest people in society right that's what i think of as serious redistributional policy which minimum wage is a pretty far cry from and so i guess the question is how constrained you know if cities are really liberated in the way you're describing, are they that liberated <laughs> that yeah. they could start to do that kind of stuff? Cause I, the, the minimum wage, you know, I, I, get that some people would say, oh, they can't even do that. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's not, it's not the big, I, you know, the, I don't know like the, it's not the big hammer yeah, yeah. and I'm wondering if, <laughs> if can cities reach for the big hammer or are they or or are they really at the end of the day just have to reach for the little tiny hammer and tap away um, as opposed to really go after the, the you know yeah. major inequalities
1: so I think this is a this is this is a this is a challenging question and I do think um, obviously I'm on the side of of being able to do more rather than less um, I think they're they they're they're there are obviously some theoretical limits although you know i'm pushing against a literature that says you can't have any real differentials or you're going to you're really going to lose out and so in some ways the minimum wage and i i, I agree with you it's not um um it's not um it's not a uh, redistribution from the various wealthiest down right it's actually it's who's going to pay this is is a real yeah. question and um um so there's a kind of workers Um, versus consumers and we might actually not know you know how that's going to play out what what the minimum wage for me or the living wage movement in the cities in the u.s cities represent was a kind of proof of concept which is on on the on the conventional and orthodox kind of tibu theory or paul peterson theory that the the of the the any differential in wage wage requirements that's not matched to some, right? That's not matched to the cost of living or something like that, is is going to have uh, employers fleeing just across the border, especially if there's there's um, if if you have multiple local governments in a juris, in a metropolitan area, right. and in fact, often you do, and they will just. They will hit the road unless there's something constraining them in various ways, and there's not much to constrain them in in a world of um, um, pretty low-cost mobility, right, Mm -hmm. low-cost transportation and so on. And that goes for tax rates because we do have differential tax rates. The city of New York taxes you a lot more than— the suburbs do, right? Um, And that's the case in lots of cities. And many times people would point to that and say, that's why the place is declining. Philadelphia has a wage tax and it's a real problem. And that's that's reducing investment in the city. New York City's got to lower its taxes so that it can compete with the suburbs, right? Same as you have to improve your schools also to get people in, right? It's the same. These are all the same kinds of types of claims, which is that that with mobile mobile people and firms those those folks can flee and then you're stuck with a city full of people who can't flee right who have no no capacity to move or or be mobile
0: that's the worry
1: That's the worry. That's right. That's the ultimate outcome And that's what some would have said is what happened to cities in the United States in the 70s, right? Um, or through many decades post-war war uh, World war war II so I, I again I going back I see the the living wage is a kind of proof of concept which is actually you don't lose you don't lose um, firms they they've adjusted pretty readily you, you your you population continues to increase in these places um your property values continue to increase in these places there's there seems to be even more demand right for this valuable real estate where you're going to pay more taxes and so i don't think we're up against the limit of what is possible and part of this is and there's a you know i again i don't want to i don't i i I, I try to be a, a skeptic all the way through lots of theories, yeah. but one account is that in fact many cities, not all cities, many cities, especially primate cities, but even some not so primate cities have. Sorry, what was that Pri- primate? primate primate cities? The the kind of New Yorks, Chicago's, uh-huh. Tokyos, Londons, right? It's the big the big boys, the big, big players. the big players. Yeah, um, they have so much at at this point, and this, to talk about them like this should be a shock to folks who understood these cities in the 70s and 80s, right? But to talk about them in the following way, which is they have so much economic power because firms so badly want to be there, firms and residents want to be there, that they can leverage that 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 location advantage to do lots of redistribution, even more so, and here would be a kind of dramatic claim, even more so than um, the nations in which they are hmm. right nations have trouble right keeping their people they 're taxing so folks are going overseas or they're moving out of the of the nation, but in fact, the power of these 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 global cities is such that that firms and residents want to be there so badly that in fact they might have more power to tax and mm-hmm. redistribute than the national government now the original the a, a a a basic account of fiscal federalism is that the subnational governments can't tax and redistribute at least not at that effectively especially not local governments maybe state yeah. governments can cuz they're big enough but certainly the the appropriate place for taxing and redistribution is at the national level because you you can capture all your people, right? You keep right. them in. People now, even in a global, but in a global world, in a global environment, even that's a problem, right? For mm-hmm. for it's not as big a problem maybe, but it, that's a problem because people flee those taxing jurisdictions, and so nation states have trouble, right? And so folks say, well, it's hard for you to tax. So now think about the city, these cities which have such. Uh, locational leverage, because people and firms want to be there, that they are they have more power to tax and redistribute than the nation. Mm-hmm. That flips the traditional and conventional account of of fiscal federalism that we've all uh, basically absorbed. And boy, that could be dramatic. Now, I don't want to say it in its strongest form, because I think a lot of cities are, need national governments to be able to tax and, and redistribute. And in fact, those Basically, as a as a as a legal and constitutional matter, as a macroeconomic matter, nation states are the only ones that can really print money, right, and run deficits and and do the things that you would have to do uh, to fight recessions and so on. Cities can't do that because they don't have their own currency, right? But imagine. <laughs> City states of the of the kind of you know of of London and and Tokyo and New York and Chicago and you can and these are places with enormous uh, GDPs right bigger than most nations and they're they have a lot of capacity even even um, even uh, as compared to nations.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Uh, so let, let me just ask you one more question because we're, we're bumping up against our our time limit here. Is um you know given this new prominence and this kind of folds into some of the more recent work that you've been doing given the the, the province of these mega cities or these inc- extremely important cities but also you know even smaller cities and in, in in structuring economic development our our economic life let's just say our cultural life and our social life you know we have a funny constitutional system in in the u.s that places an enormous amount of power at the state level rather than at the city level and you you talk there's some really interesting discussion in the book about you know kind of some of our constitutional decisions and how that's affected cities and city power and 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 the like but at my kind of big blowout question is you know sometimes i just feel like states are are vestigial at things <laughs> right. in our constitutional system that like make no sense and if we had a, you know kind of a, a constitutional convention you know which could happen, yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And we were really rethinking, you know, how we wanted to structure governance in the U.S. You know, like the federal government, big mega regions, and cities is where we would place governance authority, and it wouldn't yeah. be at the at the state level. Um, I'm just curious, your your thoughts on that. Are our are, are states still worth anything, or are they just this? thing that we're kind of stuck with in the current Constitution and it's actually a pretty crappy place to, to locate authority
1: yeah so uh, you're 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 channeling me a little bit I'm re, 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 <laughs> I'm glad to hear you're preaching to the you're, you're preaching to the choir um, so I I agree with you uh, uh, maybe not in the strongest version of what you're saying but uh, recent articles I've written have have essentially made this kind of Claim, which is that the um, the states. I think there there have long been uh, arguments that the U.S. states, in fact, are are um, a product of a, a right a flawed compromise, um, and now have lost their reason for being. And in fact, um, as we as um, is commonly understood now, I think is the the Senate is quite anti-democratic, and so is the the. Um, the electoral college, and that's based on states, and um, and that distorts and skews our uh, our politics, uh, as a, politics, our national yeah. politics. That's right, and so I have been um, I've been long fighting the following fight, which is when you talk about decentralization or federalism in U.S. Uh, legal and constitutional discourse, the immediate reaction is, you don't trust states, do you? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. states in the South had Jim Crow, and we needed civil rights laws and employment laws and anti-discrimination laws, and you needed the national government to come in and um, and do the work, do that work, um, and um, and so I say, no, it's not, it doesn't have to be about states. It can be about, it, it, you can be opposed of states, but in favor of cities, right? And so this is the claim I make um, in a recent article about um, um, metropolitanization and the problem of states, which I think states are skewed in lots of ways, their politics are skewed in lots of ways, similar, I think, to the national government in some ways, um, and skewed by a certain kind of anti-urbanism or an anti-city kind of, uh, uh, I think we see that at the national level, frankly, the hostility to states. The urban-rural divide that we're seeing is is a national one, but it starts in the states, and in part, um, uh, we had c- constructed state constitutions in some ways to address the urban-rural divide, um, um, especially in the, uh, in the in the in the nineteenth and then early part of the twentieth century, where there was a fear of the big city. Right, the big mm-hmm. city is going to take over, and it's going to have economic and political power, and we need to do various things to constrain it. Um, and so that's been a long-running. Uh, uh, a theme in state-level state, state level politics. And um, we've also seen in the last um, decade um, um, uh, a rise in state-level uh, preemption of local laws, of city laws. And I wrote a, a piece called The Attack on American Cities, which is kind of a dramatic title <laughs> for a law review article. But I think it, it is actually... Um, um, accurate in a lot of ways, um, a rise in state legislatures deciding that all kinds of policies that the cities are uh, embracing, including, by the way, quite prominently, living wage laws in cities, um, but lots of other things too, uh, environmental protection in cities, all kinds of stuff. What we've seen is city, uh, state legislatures come after those things quite uh, aggressively. We saw it in the, in, the, in the pandemic. We saw that as well. Um, state legislatures and governors um, overriding local health and safety uh, regulations and so on. So we're seeing a lot of conflict between states and their cities. And um, and my one of my th- uh, sort of claims is that that um, is representative uh, of our national political life, in fact. So what we're seeing is a kind of Uh, Phenomena at the state city level, which has kind of reproduced itself nationally Mm -hmm. Um, um, And so when we talk about the urban rural divide or other things like that, those are divides within states It's not that you have blue states and red states and blue cities Mostly blue cities, right? Or um, what you have is 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 states that are red in rural and 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 um, exurban areas and are much more and are blue in their cities. And so the divide. What federalism and this is the this is a direct answer to your question about states and what use they are. If federalism, state-based federalism, is intended to allow different kinds of places different kinds of regions to govern themselves in their own way and to, to to limit the impact of national or centralized or 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 global laws on these local communities it's not doing that work because it's the divide the most salient political divide today is internal to states it's between right. cities and their and their surrounding areas and that means you need mechanisms inside states to uh uh achieve some of the goals that federalism is supposed to achieve and so i think our state-based federalism doesn't work in the way it was perhaps intended it hasn't worked for a long time and what we're seeing is is in fact especially uh, more recently is that um that results in um occluding the actual the the actual divide that's that's most salient which is between these cities and their and their um, and the rural areas in those states.
0: Yeah, and you know, for what it's worth, the state level constitutional change is a heck of a lot more likely than uh, yes. the national level constitutional yes.
1: change. Yes, and so yeah. that that brings me to home rule, which I'm a big advocate of. Um, and uh, home rule is often associated, can be associated with a kind of conservative or reactionary. Uh, 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 approach because it, it was invoked, you know, by those resisting civil rights and so on from the national government. But the way I use Home Rule is about this, about cities actually having the power to do these things without undue interference from their state governments. And um, that seems like a huge problem, a characteristic of the 20, uh, late 20th and early 21st centuries, that. We should really pay a lot of attention to, and doesn't get as much attention as it should. And so, I've been pushing quite hard to um, to just make that more prominent, and at least in legal scholarship.
0: Great. Well, um, much more to talk about, Rich. But uh, but this has been a fascinating conversation, and we've covered a we've covered a lot of ground. Um, thanks so much for. Uh, for uh, chatting with me today and all, all the work that you that you do on
1: this stuff. Oh, thanks thanks so much, Mike, for having me on the on the podcast. It's it's a real pleasure.